Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? Season four of Chewing the Gristle, the greatest podcast that ever was. Well, that might be bold, but I like it. What is Chewing the Gristle? Well, doggone it, we've got a whole bunch of internationally renowned musical guests, mostly guitar players, I believe. <laughs> Not that other people who play other instruments aren't musicians as well, but we're a little biased towards the six-stringed variety around here. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, where, of course, I've been doing videos for over 10 years. They have so many guitars, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. You better be careful. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, bringing you state-of-the-art accoutrements for amplifying your acoustic instruments to sound the best they possibly can. Doggone it. And let's face it, their fluence guitar pickups, especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are ass kicking. Let's get to it. Season four, Chewing the Gristle, we ride. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this week on Chewing the Gristle, a special treat. Well, they're all a special treat. All these individuals I have on are just a joy to have on. I'm so doggone glad they've submitted to the gristle chewing. But we've got the mighty Sonny Landreth, slide guitar potentate of unparalleled proportions. Does that sound right? I think that's about right. Slide guitar potentate? I'm going to go with that. Sonny Landreth, ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yet another installment of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. I'm here with one of my favorite guitar players of all time, uh, Sonny Landreth, slide guitar potentate, musician of great power and majesty. Sonny, how the heck are you? Well, after that intro, I'm doing pretty dang great. <laughs> <laughs> now, where are you today? Are you at home? I am indeed. I'm, I'm at home and I'm uh, cherishing every moment. Uh, because um, leaving on uh, June the 14th, uh, going back out with John Hyatt and the Goners, and we're, we're pretty much out all summer. So I'm trying to make the most of it here. You know, I, I think that's probably when I first became aware of uh, your powerful musical activities. I think there was a Austin City Limits where you played with John Hyatt, and of course, the slow turning record. And that was right off the heels of him doing the uh, the Bring the Family record with the the great Ry Cooter. And everyone's like, well, who are they going to get to play after Ry Cooter? And then, you know, you, your own unique voice on the slide guitar. Talk us a little bit, like, what were you doing prior to, to Mr. Hyatt? And how did that all kind of come together? Well, actually, uh, the same bass player, David Ranson, and I've been um, working together for a long, long time. And we had a band called Bayou Rhythm and had been playing, you know, doing uh, bars and the like, and mostly up in Colorado and the Western states. And we'd come back uh, home to Louisiana and do the local festivals, you know. So we did that for about, I don't know, seven years or so. Kind of hit the wall. And um, <laughs> as, as you know, eventually happens with projects. And, uh, and then I got a call from um, Ray Benson of uh, Asleep at the Will, and he uh, he was producing a really great artist, a singer-songwriter, Darden Smith, in Austin. Yeah, so long story short, I was in the studio uh, working on that album, and Ray says, man, you know, 
John Hyatt just uh, made a new album and he's looking for a sly guitar player. Are you interested? And, um, and I said, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, that sounds awesome. You know, I, I didn't know that much about John. I knew a couple of his songs. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think um, it'd go much further than that. I mean, kind of heard that a lot over the years. You know? And so uh, I'm sitting there tuning my guitar. And next thing I know, I look up and Ray's handing me the phone. And keep in mind, this was back in 1988, I guess it was. So it was a long, he had to stretch it all the way from the control room. And, and, and so I'm on the phone with John Hyatt, and he's on the spot, I'm on the spot. But that's how we met. That's how we connected. And so um, John f- flew me to Nashville. You know, while I'm doing the session with Ray and Darden. And um, <laughs> so I got the gig. Uh, I went back home, and then I called John, and I, I told him something like, uh, man, I've never done this before, but uh, I said this to anybody, but I know the band you want to have. And he found that really interesting, because he was still auditioning bass players and drummers. And then I, I, so then I convinced him to fly myself and Dave Ranson and also Kenneth Blevins on drums up to Nashville to, uh, to audition. So we did. We got through one song, and he said, cancel the rest of the auditions, and uh, away we went. That's how it all got started. And the rest, as they say, is history. The rest is history. A lot of history. <laughs> so, But there's only been a couple of times that you've kind of done this reunion thing over the years, correct? Yeah, actually, we got back together a few times because we had a running joke of— um, we had to get together before the year 2000 when the world was supposed to end. Remember all the Y2K? Ah, yes. So in, ni- uh, so in 1999, he gives me a call and says, you know, we're running out of time. And I said, <laughs> yeah, we are. We better you figure this out. So uh, we got everybody back together. And we did that for, for a few years. And, um, and we did uh, recorded a, a couple of more albums. And... Um, then there's a long stretch in between that and 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 then uh, a few years ago, uh, realizing it was the uh, 30th anniversary of Slow Turning, which is kind of a mind blowing uh, thing in itself to realize it'd been 30 years, and so we got back together and um, and we played you know we did that for about a year, and we played all the songs on the album and a few others. But it was it was cool, man. It was a, a trip to go back in time like that and try to figure out, you know, what I played on those songs, and only to realize how really bad my chops had gotten on standard guitar. <laughs> I, <couldn't, laughs> I doubt that. You know, I was I was just thinking that we were so uh, gobsmacked by that era of of uh, you know you playing with John. I think. One of my first bands out of the gates was called Drive South, as a matter of fact, named after that uh, that glorious musical selection. Uh, well, was, I'll tell you what it's a it's a it's a small world, <laughs> I guess, my friend, and it gets smaller. Indeed, um, you know, I'd be rem- you know, I've I've learned so much from you over the years, slide wise. Um, it's just such a you know, it's it's a very unique thing 
when someone has such a unique voice on an instrument, especially, you know, slide is such a distinct flavor and you've added all these, you know, these technical innovations, if you will, from sliding, you know, from fretting behind the slide to your cool harmonics, all number of different things. I remember that time at that James Burton guitar festival, I was picking your brain and you were very gracious, like, oh yeah, you do like, you do it like this and like that. And it was just, it was just mind blowing. And, uh, but it's all to kind of serve this, you know, this musical statement as opposed to, you know, totemistic kind of, uh, you know, Mount Olympian guitar business, although it certainly is that as well. Uh, as you could tell, I'm, I'm both, I'm both well caffeinated and well sugared right now, Sonny. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, so, That's but, you know, <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, when did it all kind of come together for you in terms of, um, I'm sure like with all of us, you know, it's kind of a piecemeal thing. Oh, I discovered this then. But when would you say that your style congealed in the way that it was when, by the time you got into John Hyatt's band, where all of those things you're really known for, and of course you've added to that stuff, but you know, the, the basic embryo of who you would become, when was that all kind of in place? Well, you know, I think the most interesting thing, um, is well for me um the emphasis on songwriting and how like all the things you talk about and how hard we all work at technique and learn you know just trying to discover new things and to put that into place um it's still really about serving the song and and i was uh really comfortable with playing a lot of styles of music and genres and part of that was growing up here in uh, south louisiana where music is such a big part of the culture you know new orleans is just a few hours drive away um so that's such a rich uh, heritage there musically and jazz blues rock and roll r&b any cage in the zydeco where i live so the thing I realized is that it's great to be uh, versatile, but at the same time, you can get going into too many directions at once. And and the the thing about that is, I think for some players, that's you have to watch it because then you you don't really ever develop your own sound, like your own thing. And um, then I realized that. Uh, the finger style slide uh, style of slide guitar that I had developed enabled me to to sort of bring all of the, those elements in, if if you will, and and gave me a way to focus on the songwriting, so that that all of those different styles um, and all that I learned from all those different styles, um, you know, then I could actually do something with it. Um, and especially keeping in mind that it was, you know, writing lyrics and supporting the song and doing what was best for the track in the studio. So that that's sort of helped me clarify and to, to focus and to bring all that together. And I realized that the, the finger style approach with slide, and which I actually learned from Chad Atkins and uh, the, the right hand technique, the, the approach. Um, so that gave me the, that, and then on the left hand, working with the slide that could put when I put the two together, um, because otherwise I was learning like Yankee Doodle Dixie, Wendy Warm, you know, some of the Chet classics, 
And that was before I learned anything, knew anything about slide guitar. So once I started um, uh, down that path, uh, listening to the Delta Blues Cats and all that great stuff, uh, then that that sort of um, that gave me the direction to, to go and to take all of this and try to uh, put it together. So that by the time I got to work with John, I had enough to bring to the table. I felt, and I was really comfortable with that. Indeed. Uh, so you were you were a thumb picker from the get go in the in the in the uh, yoke of Chet Atkins kind of yeah, to begin with. I did, I did flat. You know, of course, I started playing flat pick, and that's all I did. And I was actually I grew up in a music store in my hometown. Okay, and and there was an older kid there who was um, already into Chet Atkins, and he's the one to turn me on to, and he gave showed me the basics. And then I just, you know, my ear was glued to those records. But up until then, I was just playing with a flat pick, you know, playing rock bands. And um, so I kept that going, both the flat picking for more the lead approach, if you will, and then the finger style when I would play the Chet songs. Um, and for a long time, I kept up um, the flat picking for the non slide guitar work, which I did. Eventually, I landed on the Gibson Firebird, and I did. That was my main axe, and then I, I had a little Gibson Melody Maker that I set up for slide. So I used, I put heavier gauge strings on it, and, and when I was just seriously going for a slide, um, uh, you know, all slide on the tr on the song, then I would tune to either, um, you know, tune to a chord E or G or A. Uh, but otherwise, I was flat picking on the Firebird, and uh, so when, that's kind of where I was at when I hooked up with John, and um, and and uh, still I played some slide on the Firebird and, and a lighter range. So I would use a chorus seeding bottle for for that, and then a heavier slide for the big strings on the Melody Maker. So when you were <clears throat> learning slide, were were there some people that were more influential than not and were there some that you intentionally kind of didn't want to get involved with because you thought that that would taint your own exploration of your own style you know what i mean oh i do yeah because that's the thing you have to watch you want to take those influences and have them um help you along the way but at the same time if you get too close and you're just totally emulating that you get lost in it and that would have been wayne allman for me you know I heard Dwayne, I was already well on my on, on my way, you know, and um with my approach. But man, he 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 made me want to go home. I said, Man, I gotta go home and turn it up. That's I just hadn't been playing loud enough. <laughs> and I loved I loved the vocal quality he got. Um and I, I started to concentrate more on that. Um, he, so he really influenced me. But but you know, it's like you say, I actually had to um, because the, the Almond Brothers became so popular, uh, and they were on the, ra the radio all the time. I mean, back then we had two-minute guitar solos on mainstream radio. You know, when does that happen again? And, right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, I had to avoid some of that. I knew the licks, and, I, and I'd find myself going into them and go, oh, ah, I got you know, a woe back. I got to figure out... Uh, let me try to figure out something else, another way to phrase that, or another way to approach that. And really, that's a great way to learn. You know, you take that, take that from your heroes, and um, 
and just find a different way around it. And and often that will actually bring you to something um, totally unique on your own. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. You know, I, I guess, you know, when I was discovering these guys and figuring out where they got, you know, trying to put the, the dots together, uh, oh, Elmore James or Robert Nighthawk or Earl Hooker or, you know, and then going back to, you know, uh, more of the acoustic, you know, country blues guitar players. But initially, you know, I kind of thought as Dwayne Ullman is someone who didn't really play with the open strings as much, more of like a closed position type, almost played like kind of a, a, a harmonica player, whereas Johnny Winter was more of that open string, right. you know, more more yeah. in, you know, seemingly an open A and open G as opposed to, you know, and there just seemed to be those schools of players. And and then Ry Cooter was kind of in that school, you know what I mean? To me, in my brain is trying to figure out, well, who did they get this stuff and so on and so forth. How did you kind of connect the dots with all this stuff, or did you kind of know a lot of these influences before you actually heard these these other kind of potentates that they would be of slide? Well, I think the first thing, believe it or not, was um, the fact that I played trumpet in school band. Ah. And believe it or not, I mean, I was, um, and I, I, I didn't really, I didn't realize it at the time, but later looking back, I. I I came at the and I started out on trumpet when I was ten years old. So by the time I got my first guitar uh, when I was thirteen, which by today's standards is you know you're over the hill. <laughs> so I um, I approached it more like a wind instrument player. I mean, I thought in, in terms of phrasing, in particular with soloing. Um, so that really helped me. I think it 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 gave me um, a different. Uh, kind of a different take on it. And I realized later that because because the trumpet, I had jazz heroes and guitar, of course, blues heroes and, and so forth. But the thing that they all uh, would strive to do is to um, emulate the human voice with their instrument. So in essence, to, to sing their instrument. And uh, that was the connecting, um, I think that connected that for me. And, and Slide really... I was able to um, do that much more effectively in thinking as a wind instrument player. So there was that. And then uh, of all the people you mentioned, I, I heard, I used to go, a bunch of my friends would pile in the car and go hear Johnny Winter in uh, in Texas. And um, and I just loved him. And, uh, his first, well, the first Columbia album, which is his second, just blew my mind. Um and he he always to me he was the other cat you know with Eric Clapton Jeff Beck and Hendrix and all Johnny was really the other guy you know in a way uh, playing and just keeping it raw though and staying a lot more closer to the roots but that you, you're right that comparison to um, more like a harp player like a harmonica player is it, a really um, fascinating thing and, and you can see how that developed uh, from the Delta Blues the Chicago Blues of course and and how that probably influenced a lot of those cats um, but um, and I, I discovered Ry Cooter I'd heard about him read about him and and fell in love with his albums um, so to me he was sort of like he was the cat you know and everybody right. else to catch up uh johnny really had his own thing already i believe and we just that was johnny uh, 
So the, I, I don't know, all of them, they're all so different. And when you study it and you go back in time at how slide guitar changed the, the influences and, and it's, it's a really deep history. Um, and I think that just says a lot more for um, slide guitar per se and the potential that it, you know, it can be used in any, any kind of genre. And, and I think that's why I did as well as I did with session work and getting, you know, people would hire me fortunately to do what I do. I mean, I have friends and, uh, and you'd be one of them. I'm sure it can read anything you put in front of them. And I, I, I did much better with trumpet when it came to that. I never <laughs> good on guitar, but I, I would get hired to do what, what you know, kind of what I brought to the table. But I was in a lot of different types of music, a lot of different genres. But I think, that, again, that just speaks more to um, the, the nature of slide guitar and the potential to cover a lot of different, to cover a lot of different uh, territories like that. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, Makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, I'm curious as to what effect, if any, you know, when the, the whole Sacred Steel thing came to the fore. I mean, talk about a very, very vocal way of approaching slide or uh, those guys were playing lap steel and, and, and pedal steel and so on and so forth. And how that is kind of affected, you know, the new generation of slide players and so on and so forth. I'm curious as to when were you aware of that stuff? And was that an influence on you as you were uh, crafting your stylings? Man, you know, uh, I didn't know anything about them until much later. And when I hit on it, I thought, oh, my God, did I miss out? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're talking about vocal quality. Um, that's that's just an amazing phenomenon to me and how that came up through the church. Um, I was really fortunate to become friends with the Campbells, and we did a lot of shows together. Um, and, um, and I, uh, of course, Robert Randolph got, met him, played shows with him. Uh, on the same bill, <clears throat> but one of the most interesting things I've ever done was uh, with my friend Jerry Douglas, the you know incredible uh, dobro master, and and he had we had this gig way out in on Vancouver Island, which I later learned was where they did a lot of the covers for the High Times magazine, <laughs> and and now I know why. Um, we were all out there, and, and I was playing with my band, but also uh, I was part of uh, a, a workshop type of thing with Jerry Douglas. And on one stage, uh, it was dedicated, you know, for a certain amount of time to um, all things guitar. So it was Jerry, uh, myself, the Campbells, um, and the Bot family from now. You know, okay. Yeah. Guitar and the, the and all that. The, um, there's incredible instruments. Uh, if, if I'm missing some, I know I'm missing somebody. I'm really embarrassed. But uh, they're all so different. But what a cool thing to do, you know. And uh, it really illustrated um, the versatility 
and and also how in terms of history um what a significant role it played and and, and also how it developed i thought just really fascinating uh, fortunately jerry gave me a tip though he said man what you want to do is you want to see if i can move you want to tune a little under c sharp i said you're kidding so yeah so go over there and listen while the the bot family was you know tuning up you know <laughs> tune around and i kind of zeroed into where they were and so then I, I i tuned down you know for when i played with them and I looked over at the Campbells. Oh my God, poor Derek, man. He was standing just shaking his head. You know, one of them, one of them that was playing with pedals, uh, he was screwed. I mean, he <laughs> everything's set. He was, you know, like, what are you going to do? He's just shaking his head. <laughs> simple blues thing. It was amazing to hear him find it and, and how accurate, you know. Those guys, uh, they were incredible. I'm sure I missed. Derek, it was a great loss. I was going to ask you in terms of um, in terms of tone. I mean, that's the other thing that's you know uh, you know so indicative of a, a person that finds their own voice on the instrument is is the tone and certainly the vibrato. I mean, that you know all of those things as much as you can. I always say that you can stack as much you know uh, pyrotechnics on top of. Uh, if you don't have the the foundation of great tone and great vibrato, it's it's just all kind of for naught, as far as I'm concerned. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, for me too. Tone and phrasing was always a thing. right. Exactly. Yeah, and and I really got that from Hendrix. You know that that didn't impress me so much, even as a kid. And um, um, and I got to hear him play once, and that that really just sent it over the moon for me. Um, but yeah. A, that's that was so because of that i that was always really important to me and it's something i i set out to achieve and set out on the path to figure out how in the hell to sound better to get that sound and i I don't know that i would have ever found it without um the finger style approach because it opens up so many possibilities uh, of what you can do um to change up the sound um just by manipulating the strings and moving your hands and fingers. And um, there's something about that too that uh, has such a, the, that touch gives it a much more of a personal vibe as well. And it's interesting to talk about the quest for tone. I would be remiss without uh, mentioning that we lost our friend David Wilson at the Tone Quest Report, which was, uh, oh. yeah, in my mind, was uh, one of the, just the best. Um, uh, journals or magazines, if you're going to call it ever. Yeah, he he just passed away recently. So um, he uh, he more than anybody articulated <laughs> all of his guitar players being obsessive about tone and how to get it um, through your guitar, the pickups, the bridges, strings, amps, pedals, speakers, you name it, and. They, he and his team would go into such technical, uh, really unprecedented uh, technical depth. You know, just okay. Here's a here's a Fender, a vintage Fender Deluxe. It sounds really good. How can we make it sound better? And retain character of the amp. And the same thing for guitars and everything else. So they go and pull it all apart. And we're talking 
changing caps, resistors, schematics, um, and just really deep. And but always keeping in sight that it was to improve the sound, to inspire you, and to play better and to play better music. So to me, that's kind of where it all comes back to that. You know, it's interesting. I was um, thinking about this the other day. I'll go down various different rabbit holes of, um, you know, YouTube and rediscovering people and finding old footage of, of old favorites and whatnot. But what just astounds me, you know, I was born in 66, so I didn't start playing guitar until 1979. And by the time I was gigging, kind of the, the you know, the, the era of being able to go into a club with a Marshall stack were gone. But I look at all these old videos and it just everyone back in the day, it's just like it was a foregone conclusion. You had a guitar which was now, of course, be worth gajillions of dollars, a chord, and a Marshall, and it sounded awesome. <laughs> Shut up, plug in, play. You know, it's like, yeah, it just it just astounds me. And like, and it was everyone. It was like ubiquitous. You turn it on, it's like, oh, here's a video of so and so. Marshalls sounds glorious. Yeah, exactly. And it, it it is just one of those things where it's like you know, I I, I wonder. If, I, I suppose at the time these guys were plugging into stuff. Well, this is just what you use. Didn't think that. Yeah, boy. In years from now, people be wishing they could play through this. It was just new gear at the time. But what's a, what's astounding to me is that you know now I'm sure you're well aware. You know, you go over to Europe and you're playing in clubs, man. You come in there with anything larger than a a, a Princeton or a Deluxe, you know, they're looking at you like you're the Antichrist. And, yeah, exactly. and so be, being able to get tone at a lower volume, what was it like for you to try to translate, you know, these, you know, those sounds into, I mean, at what point did you think, well, you know, like the Dumble, I mean, like, I'm always curious too, when you're using a Dumble type amplifier, are you using the overdrive in the amp? Are you using pedals? Because it's, boy, it seems to be all over the map of what people like to do. Well, that's a good way of putting it. We are all over the map, aren't we? And, um, yeah, with the Dumble, I've done both and do both. Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, back in the day, I think what it really came down to is, I, I know for me, I played what I had, you know, to just want a lot. And, uh, uh, okay, I had, um, I think <laughs> up until I was well in my 30s, I only had a few guitars and um, and back in, earlier on, there weren't many pedals. Um, I remember I, I mentioned I was working in a music store, so I kind of got caught wind of things before my friends did. And these salesmen would come around and and, and have whatever they had. And um, um, I mean, I think that that was the first time I ever heard of a, a fuzz tone. It was the Maestro, the Gibson Maestro fuzz tone. Yep. And uh, it was really funny because it had this chart of all these sounds you could get, like every instrument in an orchestra. I turn, <laughs> uh, plug it in, and I hear, okay, okay here's the violin. <laughs> okay, here's one like my trumpet. <laughs> I'm missing something here, man. But I dug it, you know, I still like it. I just, I never could quite follow that. That uh, schematic, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think it, it's you just you worked with what you had until you found something else, and um, and making that transition uh, really, you know, especially because you mentioned Marshall, I've been playing through mostly probably you know Fender Twins and the like, 
And when I plugged into the first Marshall, I thought that was that was truly the most glorious thing. I mean, I was right. kind of playing it, you know, and a friend of mine, it was his amp, and um, I never played with him before I'd gotten to know him. He's a really excellent player. And he walks over and goes, no, man, you don't understand. And he, and he reached over and liter- literally dimed the volume on it. And, uh, and uh, oh, wow. And I, was, I had a 175 Gibson big hollow body. <laughs> feeding back. And I go, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately. I never could do that. And, uh, but the tone of it really got me. And um, that's when I realized, hmm, you know, you know, this really can make a difference, your choices. And uh, so as that became more the thing, you know, having a lot of options, you're right, there the are more rabbit holes that go down that we can count. But um, eventually the volume thing did, you know, did have to change, and in, in, especially in smaller clubs. And um, I think the the, uh, the quality of the, especially now with all the pedals and um, being able to emulate an amp in a pedal is really kind of a thing. And it's really helped a lot of us with that in terms of capturing some of that, what we want to feel as much as the way it sounds. And we just didn't really have a lot of that back in, back in the day. Yes. And now there's almost too much. <laughs> oh, it's, there's, I prove that every morning you know, after a cup of coffee, I have to really make myself stop. <laughs> the, the whole day goes by looking at stuff for the guitar that I haven't even played. <laughs> I spent all day looking at stuff. But, uh, My favorite is, is going into the basement and realizing that I've got all these pedals in the boxes that yeah. I bought at some point thinking, I got to have this thing. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, yeah, but I can't put it on the pedal board now. Then it just goes someplace. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm very much at that point, too. And uh, this, uh, uh, local young musicians have a, a rock and roll gear garage sale once or twice a year. So now I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, carting up some of that stuff and bringing it over there for them. And, uh, but it's, it's true, man. There's a lot of great stuff out there, but there's also a lot of things that just don't work for you i mean we're all different right pace but it's once you get a, a basic setup on a pedal board it's really got to do something special i mean you're, you're trying to find you've already run out of state right and you think about the songs you know what's really helping right. songs and is it really doing something song and do i have any more room and if you do you got to take something else off so it's got to be pretty special for me right now i've i've had really huge pedal boards i've had no pedals uh when i when i got the the dumble i i didn't for the first uh, almost two years we were out touring constantly living on a bus you know it's mid mid 90s and for a long time, I didn't use anything else. I just plugged into the amp, and I had the switcher to go from the clean right. to overdrive and then the boost, you know. Um, and then I started sneaking that Dynacomp back in for the clean sound. And then, well, you know, delay is kind of cool. Next thing, right. <laughs> here we go. Um, but it's pretty cool. It, it keeps it fun and interesting, too. Just you have to have a somewhat of a built-in governor. You know, or at least have a helpline to call. <laughs> well, 
Well, lately I've come to the realization because, you know, I, I, I came up with this amp with this company that has my same last name and we worked on the signature app and I love it. And for the, for years, all I would do is go out with a cord into the amp because kind of the same thing you're talking about with the, with the dumbbells, it's clean sound, gain sound, gain sound with boost, this other boost I can add. And then it's got a glorious harmonic vibrato on it and the reverb's great. So I didn't need anything else. Uh, but then, as you said, it's like, that'd ah, be kind of nice to have a little slap back here and there. And boy, Univibe is kind of fun here and there. And so I started to, and then I was going through stuff with the effects loop, and I thought, man, I, I don't want to have this thing with the effects loop, and then yeah. have to. I didn't want to get into that. And then the foot switch for the amp was giving me some grief, and I didn't have a spare, so then I started using my overdrive pedal. And I've just, and then of course, then you have no problem with using your your delay pedals because you just set the amp clean, and then use the overdrive pedals to kind of push push it over, and then yada yada yada. Yeah. But I, I've realized that. Um, I always like the sound of overdrives on amps better for recording and just for pure tone, but just for performance wise, it just seems to be more viscerally um, inspiring to hit a pedal to get that punch over the top. Do you find the same thing or? Yeah, I think we're in a battle on a gig, you know, there's right. bass drums and keyboards perhaps or whatever other instruments so it's really important that there's this um, uh, kind of the foundation is set with the kid always fine and that's kind of sets the, the level overall level and, and so you you know things get heated up you're playing you get excited and then you want to kick it in and have somewhere else to go um, and that's I think that's part of that um, and it's uh, sometimes it takes a particular pedal to get you there, and um, right. And and I do the thing I love about the studios. You can we pull all of that crap out <laughs> and find right. something to do with it, even if it's just one little part of the song. Um, and, and and that's really fun. And I think in terms of production, that can sure make it a lot more interesting. And finding places in the mix. Uh, using a different effect or a different guitar with different pickups, speakers, all of that really um, can make a make a big difference. Yet, then you've got to figure out how to crystallize all that when you go to play the gig so that you don't, you know, it's not so complicated. Right. Um, so that's kind of a give and take. Um, but I kind of like doing that anyway. Uh, some of the songs that are have more of a production value maybe um, – in the studio with a lot of instruments or and so forth, then the, if it's a good song, it can be, it can be done any number of ways to, to figure out how to kind of cover all the bases and bring that into the format of a three piece band for me is, has always been really interesting. And that, that keeps, um, keeps me on my toes, I think. Indeed. Well, listen, I don't want to take any more of your time because I know we have some time constraints today. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been absolutely glorious. I'm looking for, I think you're playing in Milwaukee, if I'm not mistaken, with, with John Hyde. I got to figure out when you're we coming. Are, we're pretty much all over. I mean, mostly uh, East Coast and in some of the, the Midwest states. So, yeah. And, um, and I have a few with my band, too, in the middle of all that. So it's... It's going to be a pretty crazy summer for me, but I'm I'm really glad that you know we can get back out there and play, and um, we we sure have all missed that. And um, yeah, no doubt about it. 
So, uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it. It's big fun. I, I, I love it. I appreciate you and, and all that you do. It's just incredible. And uh, we'll keep it rolling. All right, my friend. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. I hope to see you out there on the road. You too, Greg. Thank you. All right, take it easy, Sonny. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.